Stuartolia is a name known to some people here, but not everyone here. He's a highly regarded minister with many years' experience. Uh, in fact, he's now pretty old and he's retired. And as he's retired, he was interviewed about his thoughts and experiences. And one of the interview questions was, what does the church in the UK most need? Now, what do you think he would answer? What does the church in the UK most need? Well, some of you would know he's a pretty conservative man. That doesn't mean that he's anti the Labour Party. It means he's a pretty traditional sort of person. So would he say what the church most needs is to resist the trend of contemporary worship? Well, I suspect he might think that, but no, that's not what he said. He's very keen on preaching. He's written books on preaching and trained many preachers. So would he say preaching that's clear and powerful and personal? That's a subject dear to his heart. No, that's not what he said. He's also written on the importance of experience, that actually churches underplay today the importance of spiritual experience. So did he say, more experience of fellowship with God by the Holy Spirit? Oh, that's really important to him, but no, that's not what he said. His answer was simple, very simple. He said, what the church in the UK most needs today is more confidence in God. More confidence in God. Now, I reckon he's right. He knows better than me. But I also reckon it from looking at the church in the UK, but also from looking at the prophets in the Old Testament. Now, they were written to God's people who were weak and defeated and despised. They were written to God's people when his enemies were dominant. And it looked like God's cause had been defeated. They were written to God's people when all this had happened because of their sin. It was basically their fault. And that's all rather like the church in the UK today. But a lot of what the prophets wrote in that context was to give the faithful few confidence in God. You can see that even in Isaiah's commission. Now, it wasn't for this reason that Seth preached last Sunday evening on Isaiah 6 and Isaiah's commission. But you can see it there. There's Isaiah being set off on his work of preaching God's word. And it sets the scene for the whole book of Isaiah, even though it comes six chapters in. And there the Israelites, we're told, will not listen to God. They're going to be taken captive. The the nation is going to be virtually wiped out and it all looks like it's going wrong. But Isaiah sees the Lord is king and he's got it all planned. Right from the start, Isaiah is given confidence in God because he's going to need it. And so this evening I want us to use Isaiah to see various ways that we can and should be confident in God in our situation. That's what we need. It's not the only thing, but it's possibly the biggest thing. We need confidence in God in our situation. Let's see that from Isaiah. First of all, we need to be confident God is in control. Now we could find so many examples in Isaiah... Um, almost the whole book is telling you about how God is in control of when everything looks like it's going wrong in Israel. But one of my favourite examples, because it's so remarkable, is chapter 37. Let's just look at that one example of God in control. Would you turn, please, again to Isaiah 37. Isaiah 37. 
Now, what makes this one so remarkable? It's this. The superpower of the time was Assyria, with its king Sennacherib. And he had been laying waste to country after country. And now he'd come against Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was a pretty tiny uh, capital of a pretty tiny country. And he's full of boasting, oh, the gods of the other nations haven't saved them, so the Lord won't save you. And in response to all that boasting, the Lord says this to him. Verse 26. Have you not heard? Long ago I ordained it. In days of old I planned it. Now I have brought it to pass that you have turned fortified cities into piles of rubble. Their people drained of power are dismayed and put to shame. They are like grass. Sorry, they are like plants in the field, like tender green shoots, like grass sprouting on the roof, scorched before it grows up. But I know where you stay, and when you come and go, and how you rage against me, because you rage against me, and because your insolence has reached my ears, I will put my hook in your nose, and put my bit in your mouth, and I'll make you return by the way you came. Remarkable statement of God's control. He says, you are totally in my hands. And all your victories were planned by me. And now you're going to face your defeat, which has also been planned by me. And we can read that easily, but think about what it meant to people back then. Verse 26, I planned it and now I have brought it to pass that you turned fortified cities into piles of stone. Think what that meant for people in cities around Israel and some within Israel as well. You can actually see pictures of this in the British Museum in London. It meant Sennacherib going and bombarding with his siege machines people's cities and tearing down the walls and burning their homes And verse 27, the people being like grass on the roof that's withered in the sun as they were carried off into captivity or killed there on the spot. And you'd look at it and you'd say, where is God? What an out of control world. But God says, even this I'm in control of. Mystery to us, isn't it? Because Sennacherib is sinning most wickedly. He's doing it out of pride and greed. But God is working out his righteous plan. By the way, who is this all being said to? I said he says it to Sennacherib. Well, he's addressing Sennacherib, but it is actually being spoken to someone else. Look at verse 21. Then Isaiah, son of Amos, sent a message to Hezekiah. This is what the Lord says. It's it's to the Israelites this message comes. It's to their king, Hezekiah. It's to God's people to give them confidence. Here's this, the superpower has turned up on your doorstep. But the real superpower is God's. And he's in control even of the enemies attacking them. Now we need that message today. We need that message when we're troubled by what's going on on the big scale. Let's just think of one little example. Well, that's a contradiction, little example of what's going on on the big scale. One example of what's going on on the big scale. What symbol of the UK's Christian heritage is seen in every village and town of this country? Well, it's the parish church, isn't it? It's amazing, isn't it? Sometimes they're like mini cathedrals, these massive 
buildings must have cost a fortune to build in every town and village. You think, what power and influence the Church of England has had in this country? Now, according to the latest surveys, how many young adults call themselves, you know the phrase, C of E? Say, I'm Church of England. The answer is 2%. And of those, only one in five ever turn up to the Church of England. Now, this is not a comment for or against the Church of England, either trashing it now or saying how wonderful it was in the past when it had influence. I'm not commenting on that. I'm just saying there is a measure, just one measure of, the decline of Christianity has been drastic. Because that statistic says the Church of England's virtually finished. How can it continue? We need the message, God is in control even of this. When... As I say, I'm not getting at the Church of England there. I'm saying, look at the state of our nation and Christianity within it. We need this message when we're troubled by what is happening to us personally. Not just on the big scale, but the little scale. I think of someone saying, what is God doing? Why has he allowed me to go through operation after operation and they haven't worked? Why does he allow this illness that surely makes me less useful... And it just is persisting. We need the message of God's control even in this. Now if you say, okay, yeah, I can see it's in Isaiah 37, but that's pretty obscure. I'd hardly even heard of this Sennacherib before. Well, you shouldn't say that. But if you do, think of the event at the centre of history. It all looked so out of control as people spat in the face of Jesus and mocked him. And and a wicked governor allowed injustice just to save his position. And they stripped off his clothes and they killed him. But Acts 4 says, they did what God's power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Even in the most wicked event ever, God is in control. You cannot believe that God was in control at the cross and not believe he's in control of the details in your life. Be confident, God is in control. Here's the second thing we've got to be confident in that Isaiah tells us. Be confident God is the great reverser. uh, My spell checker actually said there's no such word. I've made that up. It's nothing to do with driving. It's to do with causing reversals. God is the great reverser. Now, I hope you read Isaiah. Do you read Isaiah? Wonderful book, but it can be really confusing. And one of the things confusing about it is you get sudden changes. It seems to be talking about judgment, then suddenly it's talking about mercy. And almost mid-sentence it changes direction, and it confuses you. But I reckon one of the reasons is it's showing us God does unexpected reversals. Because one of the big repeated themes of Isaiah is God unexpectedly raises up the lowly and the weak. Let's have one example. Chapter 41. Would you turn to chapter 41? Now, chapter 41 describes the mighty King Cyrus of Babylon. Those who know their Bibles might say, not Babylon, Persia, but anyway, it's sort of Babylon. Verse 2. 41 verse 2. Who has stirred up one from the east... 
calling him in righteousness to his servants. He hands nations over to him and subdues kings before him. He turns them to dust with his sword, to wind-blown chaff with his bow, or chaff if you want to call it chaff. So it describes this mighty king, and he's just reducing nations to rubble, like Assyria was before him. And the nations tremble, verse 5. The islands have seen it and fear. The ends of the earth tremble. And in that context, whatever will happen to the tiniest and most devastated of nations, Judah? Remember, most of Israel had gone off. The Assyrians had taken most of Israel. And now just Judah's left. And Judah's been taken into captivity. And now there's a new superpower on the scene, King Cyrus. What's going to happen to them? And the answer's in verse 14. Verse 14. Do not be afraid, O worm, Jacob, O little Israel, for I myself will help you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. See, I will make you into a threshing sledge, new and sharp with many teeth. You will thresh the mountains and crush them and reduce the hills to chaff. You will winnow them, the wind will pick them up and the gale will blow them away. But you will rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. What will happen is this great reversal by God who uses the weak to display his strength. I love it. Verse 14, O worm, Jacob. I think of a few years ago being on holiday with my children. We were out for one of our early morning walks down a quiet country lane and there was a worm in the middle of the road. And being with children, we stopped to have a look at this worm and uh, tell it to get a move on. Because what happens if a car comes down the road? Is the worm going to quickly dodge the car? What happens if a bird swoops over? Is the worm going to fight it off? What is more vulnerable than a worm? And here's Jacob the worm. And you'll probably know it's significant that he says Jacob, that chap who was like a second-hand car salesman you shouldn't buy anything from. What a crooked man. But what is God going to do for this worm Jacob? Well, I wish I could get a cartoonist to draw this. Try to picture it in your mind. We ought to have a cartoonist to draw this one. Here's the worm. Picture this, and it says it's going to grow teeth. It's as if a bird swoops over, and the worm raises up and bears its teeth. And the teeth grow. And then the the worm gets armour plating until it's developed into a threshing sledge that a farmer pulls behind an oxen. But instead of the worm crushing grain, this worm has grown big enough that it is crushing mountains and turning them into powder. It's like a cross between a bizarre children's cartoon and a nightmare. And it's all a striking picture of God using the weak to do a phenomenal reversal. And it isn't just a bizarre children's cartoon, because who worships the gods of the Babylonians and the Persians today? No one, as far as I can see. Who worships the god of Worm Jacob today? Hundreds of millions all around the world. What a reversal. And he's still the great reverser. In the 16th century, a, a, a monk in Germany hammers some of his thoughts on the church door. How feeble. And he's got the whole might of the Roman Catholic Church and the Holy Roman Empire out to crush him. But they don't. The gospel spreads like wildfire through Europe. A reversal. 
in the 18th century, a preacher stands on a grave in a graveyard because he's been locked out of the parish church. And people throw things at him and jeer at him. How feeble. But God uses John Wesley to bring revival across the land. In the 1950s, Chairman Mao throws the missionaries out of China and the Christians who are left are few and discouraged and weak. How feeble compared with the might of the Chinese government. But God uses them. And the Chinese government can't stop the church growing to, what, 80 million Christians? And all of that is totally unsurprising. I hope that totally unsurprises you. Because we have our roots in a man looking the most feeble ever, straining to get a breath, his blood dripping to the ground, dying on a cross. But now he's risen, and all authority in heaven and on earth are given to him, and he has the name above every name, the greatest reversal ever. So be confident, God is the great reverser. He can use feeble us. And that leads to a third thing to be confident in, and it's this. Be confident in God to exalt Jesus. Now last week, uh, not that it was planned to fit in with this, you were in Isaiah 6 along with Seth preaching. And Isaiah 6 ends with Judah lying ruined and without inhabitant. And after most of the inhabitants have been wiped out... uh, The ones that are left nearly all get wiped out. And Israel is pictured as a tree in Isaiah 6, but the tree is reduced to just a stump. The sort of thing you see children jumping off in Bradgate Park. Useless dead stump. And what's most devastating about that? Well, it's this. Israel as a tree is the family tree of the Messiah. And if the family tree of the Messiah is just a stump, then surely the Messiah can't come. Is God going to manage to bring his Messiah and exalt Jesus? Well, that's why we read Isaiah 11. Would you turn to Isaiah 11 now? Isaiah chapter 11. And see verse 1. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. And so on. The family tree isn't dead. The Messiah will come. In fact, Isaiah reveals him to be greater than anything that they'd known before. You know, they'd heard about the Messiah before. They knew what Isaiah was talking about, but they didn't know he'd be this great. God was fulfilling his plan. He would exalt Jesus. The family tree wasn't dead. Yes, it took an awful long time, but he did it. And we need the same message because of the situation we're in and the situation we might be in in the future. Who knows? Now, I wonder, have you heard of Augustine of Hippo? What a great name. Yeah, if any of you have any children in the future, there's a name to consider. Call your child Augustine of Hippo. Yeah, great name, great church leader. One of the greatest church leaders. Where was he from? Oh, you say, that's obvious, he was from Hippo. Where's Hippo? Well, it's in Egypt. Well, Algeria is sort of next to Egypt. Okay, North Africa, thank you. 
was a great centre of Christianity. And then what happened? The church corrupted. And Islam came in and it's dominated ever since. Actually, more so in Algeria than in Egypt. (laughs) Thank you. Had God abandoned his plan to exalt Jesus? Oh no, because the church grew elsewhere and Jesus has been exalted more. We could say the same about Turkey. What a great centre of Christianity. And the church corrupted and Islam came in and it has dominated ever since. What a disaster for Turkey and for Algeria. Has God abandoned his plan? Oh no, the church grew elsewhere and Jesus has been exalted more. Could it happen in the UK? Could Christianity be pushed out from the UK like it has from Turkey and and Algeria? Oh yes, it could. It could. I hope it doesn't. Pray, please pray fervently that it doesn't. We should care for our land and our people. But whatever happens here, even if it's that... Jesus will still be building his church in this world and he will still return. Be confident, God, be confident in God to exalt Jesus. Now, of course, that's only any comfort to you if you care about Jesus. That is not any comfort to people wrapped up in themselves. But I hope it's comfort to you. Here's the fourth, here's the last thing. Be confident in this. Be confident in God's word and spirit. Now, Isaiah says that God is the great reverser. So the question is, how does he do these reversals? Isaiah says God will exalt Jesus. The question is, how does he exalt Jesus now? And Isaiah says there's there's two powerful instruments God uses. His word and his spirit. And we must be confident in them both. Let's look at an example of each. Isaiah 55 for God's word. Here's a chapter that comes to people who are in distress and it comes to give them comfort and encouragement and it tells them to be confident. Confident in what? In God's word. Isaiah 55 and verses 10 and 11. 55 verse 10. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. It's saying God's words are not like our words. Right from the first act of creation, and it's interesting, verse 10 links it in to what's going on in the created world. His words have had power to do whatever he purposes. And here it's linked with causing fruitfulness, making a dry place spring with life. But it's not that they're magic words. It's not that they've got some captivating sound. Muslims seem to believe that even the sound of of the Quran is so beautiful that it will win you. The Bible doesn't claim its sound is so beautiful it will captivate you. Their power is through the Spirit. It's interesting just how much Isaiah has to say about the Spirit of God. Let's just look at one example. Uh, If you go backwards to 44. Isaiah 44. 44 verses 1 to 4. 
44, verse 1. But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, Israel whom I have chosen. This is what the Lord says. He who made you, who formed you in the womb, and who will help you. Do not be afraid, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. One will say, I belong to the Lord. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Still another will write on his hand the Lord's and will take the name Israel. Did you see the parallel with chapter 55? In chapter 55, what happened? There's dry ground and God's word is like rain falling on it and making it spring up with life. Isn't it exactly the same in 44? You've got, it's like dry ground and rain falling on it and it springs up with life. But this time, what is the rain falling on it? It's the spirit of God. See? God works by his word and his spirit. And Isaiah is, sending, is saying to people who feel so weak, but you have power. The power is God's word and his spirit. And that is a pattern throughout scripture. In fact, that provides the pattern for how God saves people. Oh, you say God saves people through Jesus on the cross. That's right. But how does that get applied to us today? By his word and his spirit. I'll give you an example from another uh, prophet. Uh, you can turn to him if you want, or you can just listen. It's Ezekiel. Ezekiel is full of the Spirit of God, but interestingly connected to the Word of God. Ezekiel 37 is this wonderful chapter about that. It has this bizarre, striking picture of a valley of bones. It has this valley, and it's full of skeletons, without a, without a strip of flesh on them. And Ezekiel is told to speak God's word to them. Verse 4, Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. What could be more impossible? They don't have eardrums. They don't have brains inside these skulls. And yet the skeletons are going to come to life. Breath, the next verse says, is going to come into them. And it's interesting, the word breath is the same word for spirit. And then it's all made clear. This is a picture of God bringing life by his spirit. Verse 14. I will put my spirit in you and you will live. It's all a picture of God bringing people to life, to spiritual life, from death to life by his words, made effective by his spirit. You can see it in Isaiah. You can see it in Ezekiel. You can see it in Jesus. His word had power. Can you think of some examples? Let, let's, let's get you thinking. Some examples where Jesus spoke and it happened because he said. Some examples? Stilling the storm. Be still and it was still. I heard someone whisper, Lazarus come out and he came out. To the paralysed man. But he couldn't. What was the point of saying that to him when he couldn't? Ah, but Jesus' words had power to enable him to obey. The leper says to him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus seems almost 
indignant at himself. If you're, he said, I'm willing. Be clean. And he was clean. His words have power. And they're all pictures of salvation in one way or another. Not so obvious with the stilling of the storm, but the others, they're all pictures. The dead brought to life. The, those dirty in their sins made clean. Those un, incapable of pleasing God made capable. Pictures of salvation. Is it because they were magic words? Was he a magic worker? Oh no, it's all the Spirit. Look at one last place in Isaiah 61, chapter 61. This actually comes up a few times in Isaiah. Uh, I, I was in two minds which was the best place to turn to for this because it's quite a theme in Isaiah. But this is how Christ's words had power. Isaiah 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. And we don't have to guess who that's about because Jesus said in Luke 4, that is me. His words had power because he had the Spirit coming with those words. And that, is, that should be true for us. That needs to be true for the ongoing mission of the church. I'll read you, our last passage we'll look at today, I'll read you from 2 Thessalonians 2. You can turn to it if you want or you can listen. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. But we always ought to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. There were people in a town called Thessalonica who had been worshippers of all the pagan, ridiculous gods of the Greeks. But now they were followers of Jesus. How come? Why did they believe in this man who just didn't fit any of the expectations? A weak-looking man crucified. What made them believe? Verse 13 says, what made them believe was the word and the spirit. The truth came to them. Verse 14 says the gospel came to them. Verse 15 says there were teachings that could have been by word of mouth or by letter. It doesn't matter. It, It came to them, the word. And they believed. And the spirit worked in them. Word and spirit brought them to saving faith. Now, thankfully, we've had baptisms here, haven't we, over the last 12 months? Quite a few. Think of some of the testimonies you've heard. Think of some of the people you know who've come to Christ. and What brought them to trust in Jesus? Think of the testimonies you've heard. Well, they heard God's word. They heard the good news of Jesus. Oh yes, but many people heard God's word and and didn't believe. Many other people heard the good news of Jesus and said, no, I don't want him. Why did these ones believe? Were they cleverer? Were they better? Is it just chance? Is it just random? I heard of someone recently who, when she heard some verses of the Bible read to her, laughed at them. And a little while later, when she heard the same verses read, believed them and lapped them up. What made the difference? The work of the Holy Spirit, who opens blind eyes and brings dead people to life and who softens hard hearts. So think of your neighbours 
And think of your work colleagues. And think of people you go to school with, if you go to school. And think of people you see in the town centre. Or your friends and relatives who are unsaved. Now, some of them are thoughtful about life, I expect. And some of them are careless and they just don't want to know. And some of them are openly hostile to the gospel. And some of them have been hurt and really put off the gospel. And some of them think they're Christians when they're not. But for all of them, God's word and spirit are powerful enough to bring them to saving faith in Jesus. I think of a relative of mine who doesn't believe the gospel, and I have many relatives, sadly, who don't believe the gospel, but I think of one particular, and he shows up my misguided uh, confidence in my powers of persuasion. I have this ridiculous confidence in my powers of persuasion. It's stupid. Because I don't even get a chance to persuade him. Because he doesn't want to listen. <sighs> powers of persuasion can't do it. Uh, tr- do try to persuade people. But we can't even get a chance with some people. But the Holy Spirit can soften and humble the hardest and proudest of hearts. So have confidence. Have confidence God's in control. Have confidence he can use little worms like us. Have confidence in his agenda to exalt Jesus. Have confidence in his word and spirit. And that gives us what we should do. What should we do about this? I hope it's obvious. Tell his word and pray for his spirit. That's easy to remember, isn't it? There's your application this evening. Tell his word to people and pray for his spirit. That sums up an awful lot of what the church should be doing. Tell his word to people. Pray for his spirit. Let's do it.